Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is a functional medicine physician who specializes in muscle-centric medicine, which focuses on the biggest organ in the body, the muscle, as the key for health and longevity. Today, we talk about why the biggest problem we see in the general population isn't one of obesity, but one of insufficient muscle mass. And we talk about nutrition, more specifically, protein requirements and training guidelines for the aging population, and so much more. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Sit down, sit back, and enjoy another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. What's up, everyone? It's your favorite podcast producer, Nick Tricana, here to give you a word from our incredible sponsor over at Element. Listen, you're not getting enough electrolytes or salt in your diet. I see it. Steffi sees it. Hayden sees it. We all see it. Element is an electrolyte drink mix with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, and no BS. Everyone needs electrolytes, especially those on low-carb diets, practice intermittent fasting, are physically active, or sweat a lot. But don't just take my word for it. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. U.S. Olympians, players in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and even our own special forces drink Element. I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm the pinnacle of self-performance, but ever since Steffi turned me on to Element, I've seen vast improvements in my everyday training and recovery. You guys can try Element today with a totally risk-free, no-questions-asked refund policy. And you know what? Because we love y'all so much over here at Hybrid Unlimited, we're going to hook you up with a free sample pack of Element just for you. Each sample pack includes eight grab-and-go packets in a variety of different flavors. All you have to do is go to drinkelement.com hybrid. That's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid for your free sample pack of eight grab-and-go element packets. Stay salty, my friends. Now back to the podcast. And so all the health and wellness podcasts, right? And even in the health and wellness podcast, we see it. There's this um, like dichotomy between the medicine, even now, and then fitness professionals. Don't you think? For sure. For sure. There's there's a huge disconnect. Like when yeah. even I'm sure Steffi noticed it when she was in the clinic and I noticed it when I was in the clinic. I was like just there was a huge barrier yeah, between yeah. like what I was trying to tell the physicians yeah. and what they were telling yeah, me yeah. and it was like we were just But even you know, as you guys get out, but even as you guys get out there in the public, like you need to be on Lisa's podcast. You need to be on these guys. Like that audience needs to hear it. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just about yoga and Pilates, but people get really pissed when I say that. Oh really? <laughs> oh my god! Ooh, spicy. Oh, they got really upset. <laughs> why? Like, why? Oh why do god. they get upset? That's not sufficient. So here's what I said. Are you ready? So mm-hmm. I went on the Mind Body Green podcast, which is another one for you, which would be a great one. I've, um, I've been on that, but I'll be in. What? I've been on it. Oh, you I'm did. Yeah. So I went on that podcast, and I said, "Listen, Pilates is probably not ideal for strength and or hypertrophy." I mm-hmm. saw that clip. Did you get canceled? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Would you disagree that Pilates is not the primary? Have you ever seen a buff, uh, jacked, ripped and tan Pilates person? No, I 100% exactly. agree. Okay. 100% agree. Like it's, I always say like it's, it's a matter of, of matching the exercise or the intervention with mm-hmm. a goal. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think like a lot of people, I know that a lot of these girls are going to yoga and Pilates to get more toned. They don't even know what toned is. Tone mm-hmm. is an increase in muscle mass and a reduction of body fat right like are you gonna get that from pilates and yoga probably not and it's not because i don't like pilates totally. and yoga or have Nothing anything against personal it. against mm-hmm. it i actually love it i think it's right. like it's good for again the goal right what's the goal you're trying to wind down you're trying to increase your your parasympathetic nervous system yeah, yeah. you're trying to 
I don't know, meditate, get in touch with yourself, improve your flexibility. Mm. I don't know. You know, it's a tool. It's a tool. But not you have the to right tool for the I mean, job we're talking on. about. And also, if you care about being fit, the older you get, those modalities are pretty. Um, there's a low barrier to entry, mm-hmm. so you can yeah. do it nearly at any age, mm-hmm. right? So from my perspective is why not build, get strong, do it while you can. And then as you need to, begin to progress or deload in particular ways that you do that. Because it's hard. People don't like hard, people don't like challenge. It's very offensive. <laughs> it's very offensive, don't offend me. <laughs> I love that when you're on podcasts, when you've been on podcasts in the past, yeah. you, you talk a lot about you know doing the hard thing. And yeah, it's <laughs> not easy, that. but it's... That's a, I'm gonna give a talk on that tomorrow. Yeah? That's why I say, and this might be another unpopular opinion, but I always say that, you know how in Israel you're like, they force you to go to the military for a couple of years. I honestly think that that would make America better. If we were forced forced to go, discipline, man. Yeah. Discipline. Hey, you know the other thing? (laughs) You know the other thing? Holy cow, my water is excited. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to talk about this tomorrow is like there's this this concept that stress is bad and then we all need a hot bubble bath. And that is like pervasive Mm -hmm. in our society. And it everyone just talks about fight or flight as if that's the only stress response. Right. There's courage, which is, you know, my patients exhibit courage. You probably exhibit a courage response. Same with you. What's a courage response? Courage response is like when things get tough you're like i got this like my husband the military operators when you know when he's ready to jump out of a plane he's not like oh my god i'm peeing myself which i would totally be like Mm -hmm. but their knee-jerk reaction is courage but that's and i would say that goes hand in hand with its resilience right it's it's constant or consistent exposure to stress totally and being able to manage your like manage your response control your emotions and you know, not not get distracted by the stress and not get not crumble under pressure mm-hmm. and learn how to use that to your advantage and develop courage. Right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Because it's not. But that again, that's the whole like avoidance model that most people follow through their whole life. Well, we've right? been fed that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what we're taught. Yeah. To avoid things that are uncomfortable, to turn on to the heater, stress, to go mm-hmm. relax, to hide away yeah yeah but what i'm sure that there's would you agree that there's kind of a fine line like some sort of balance because obviously yeah you do need a certain amount of strength in order to build courage and resilience but at the same time you also need the the de-stress to a certain extent right because i I have the problem that i I feel like i run hot most of the time and that is that works against me a lot i Mm. um i think it depends and i've thought a lot about this because i look at my husband and I and you know we were talking about this before, and obviously um, he's military, and uh, he, I go, honey, you know what do you think about that? So I, I brought that exact thing up to him, and he said, well, you know, I don't actually get stressed. Of course he does, but probably he doesn't perceive it he as stress. He doesn't perceive it as stress. Yeah, incredible. But that's weird, Dude. right? And I'm like, so, you know, trying to like, like, what do you, you know, come on, you gotta be stressed. You're getting up at four in the morning. You know, what if you don't get the spot, right? So he's, my husband was in the SEAL teams for a decade and then transitioned out of the teams to, he's in medical school now. He's in medical school. Wow. Do you know that? The guy's top of his class. Got an interview at Harvard, Yale, Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins. Killing it. Crushed oh my it. God. Six, like six publications out this year and six more in the works. The guy's just next level. But thrives in stress. No, he doesn't experience it as stress. Just, wow. That's, because that's think about the it. difference. That's the weird part is 
I, I, and it's weird to watch. Yeah. There's, a, he doesn't have a narrative. It's, uh. I, I can totally relate to that. Like, I'm not on that level. Like, I still obviously experience <laughs> stress to a certain extent. But I've been around fr- friends that have seen me go through extremely yeah, yeah. stressful periods. And not, and I'm not, really genuinely don't feel that stress. It's like, like, this is kind of an annoying thing I have to deal with. But I think like, again, and going back to like the perspective, right? If you, if it's, because stress is relative, right? If if the most stress that I've ever gone through is my clothes didn't fit in my suitcase, (laughs) right? (laughs) I mean, that's not a lot of stress. So obviously like the death of my dog is gonna completely tip Mm -hmm. me over, you know? Versus your husband who's been through Navy SEALs training, has been through hell week. Mm -hmm. I I mean, listen. I asked him, I was like, how was that for you? You know what he said? What he said was fun. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> Yo, that's goals. Listen, I I read a lot of books. Like, no, that shit was fun. I read a lot of books by Navy SEAL people who have yeah, been yeah. through Navy SEALs or through Navy SEALs yeah, training yeah. just because, man, I find it, I always read the stories and I'm like, could I do that? Yeah. You know, I remember I read this book, uh, Make Your Bed. It's like an easy it's short It's a great read. book by great McCraven. Book. I love that book. By Admiral, uh, yeah, and, McCraven. And he was describing one of the days from Hell Week of like how he was, uh, had to swim through shark infested waters yeah. and that was the time where I was like because I was reading I'm like yeah I can do this I can do this I can do this and then I got to that and I'm like oof man <laughs> can I do that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah hard and I wonder but you know what I think that I think and this is obviously I'm saying it in the comfort of, of this office yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't know I think that if I'm ever in that situation and I've put myself all the way through yeah, yeah, yeah. getting there Obviously, like, I care about dying. I'm not saying that I'm hopeless or depressed or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. But if I'm there and it's, like, sink or swim kind of thing, fuck it, you know? I'm going to get in there. And yeah. if I die, it's, mm. like, I died with trying the the, mm. the thing. That's a courage response? With courage. Then? Yeah, that's a courage yeah. response. I Is died that kind trying. of like a version we, of fight? Do we start recording? Are we going to record? Yeah, we're just recording. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> What's up, guys? Welcome. It was, <laughs> it was just such a good conversation. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to um, pause it. The... Uh, you know, it's not to say that they wouldn't get, you know, he wouldn't say, he said it was hard. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't like freaked out about it or stressed or, that's no. incredible. No, he, he would say that um, it was hard. But Has he, he always been like that? Mm. Has he always yeah. been like that? No, here's what he would tell you. So he would say that it was trained out of me, that during, that he had a narrative up until hell week. And then during hell week, that narrative was trained out of him that he hmm. had to be able to learn how to focus on the next thing. Focus on the next thing. And that there wasn't this conversation. Me, I'd be bitching the whole time, right? <laughs> like he's waking up at 4 a.m. You can imagine I'm bitching the whole time. Uh, but it, it, he said that that narrative had to have been trained out of him in order for him to be successful. And you know, mm-hmm. I would say that when I look at my most successful patients, those are the ones that do not have a narrative. Ever. I'll tell you a story. You want to hear a story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I um, I have one patient, and he was a team guy, 20 years. He is a team guy. Well, he's uh, transitioned out. 20-year uh, team guy. He's a breacher. So he's the first guy in, the guy that blows up things, right? He's the guy that they send to blow up the door. And he had been in the teams for 20 years. He's built like a, he's like a big old Texan farm boy. And um, he was home from a deployment. And he was on his motorcycle. He was going like five miles an hour. And a 17-year-old girl texting and driving takes him out. Mm. He loses his leg. Okay. And he was sitting in my office 
ruining the story by putting the water away. Um, but uh, sitting in my office, and you know, I'm 5'1". I, I think in order to be on this podcast, you have to be under 5'2". <laughs> <five two. laughs> uh, and he was sitting in my office and, and I was like, you know, Brian, how are you doing? And he looks at me, he's like, well, doc, you know, I'm tired and I'm having a little bit of this phantom limb pain. But you know, I'm like, no, no, come on. Here you are, this big alpha stud of a guy, your career's over. And I go into like launching into this whole thing. I'm like, I'm gonna get this motherfucker to really open up to me. And he looks at me, he's totally bewildered. And he goes, like, doc, uh, what are you talking about? He literally looked at me like I asked him for a box of tampons. <laughs> and I go, you know, ah, Ryan, you lost your leg, this, this, and this. And he goes, Doc, that was six months ago. As if it I'm was another it. lifetime ago. That was six months ago. Okay. And, you know, it was in that moment. And by the way, um, my husband had called later. Uh, you know, this is when I had a, a clinic in New York City. And he was like, oh, you know, Brian told me that he went to see you. How was it? And I was like, well you know, Brian, you know, he lost his leg. He's like, yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, how are you doing? And I hear this like dead silence on the other end of the phone. And he was like, uh, honey, that was six months ago. Oh my God. <laughs> so that is an, so the most These successful, <laughs> the most, but it, it, it was an uncommon situation, but the individuals that do the best have a very common response within among themselves. That's and it was absolutely no narrative. That's so interesting. Like no story that there they're no adhering to it and like a story. expecting out of themselves. It was ex exactly. It yeah. was execution. What is the task at hand? And listen, mm. it wasn't that he didn't grieve. He grieved, but it was much shorter. And it was, you know, I've taken care of him now for many years. He moved on and he moved on so quickly where the majority of us are still bitching about something that happened six years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. And especially something so critical as that. And uh, that, that's one of the, the things that I always see in the individuals that do the very best in their field. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is their ability to interpret stress and reinterpret stress as this, you know, we always say, uh, you know, like I'm getting butterflies. But these individuals, and I'm not just talking about the military operators, but also I take care of these entrepreneurs that are at the top of their game. It's like those butterflies are in attack formation. Mm -hmm. They are ready to rock and roll. Mm -hmm. It is, here's this thing in front of me. It is not like, oh my God, you know, oh no. It is, you know, like bring it on. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, and then the third thing, if I were to give you the third lesson and fix everyone's problems to be an asset to themselves, right? Because you're either an asset or a liability. The good news is it's totally within your control. The bad news is the majority of people are complete liabilities to themselves. How so? Mm -hmm. They have a narrative they are weakened against stress and they have no understanding of their own human weakness is probably the third thing they're constantly surprised by their human nature so for example before a big fight you will likely kind of peak out mentally and emotionally right mm -hmm. so you go to this it's it's very common right mm -hmm. um but following that peak you'll likely and maybe not you, I'm using you as an example, will fall below your baseline capacity of functioning. Yeah. Okay, this is common uh, at that high point is the point that you are most vulnerable to, I, I don't wanna say stress, but a vice. Like, I don't know if you drink, but drinking, drugs, mm -hmm. shopping, porn, like you name it, any vice, you are at a peak 
time of vulnerability right before you likely compete. Right after you compete, when your dopamine and your hormones and your cortisol and everything, you know, uh, well, let's just say dopamine is below baseline, at that point, you're also incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it's at that point that you will also likely do activities to try to bring you back up. So the most successful patients, and I say patients because medicine is the modality that allows me to interface with people on a very intimate level, it's at that high and at that low that people are most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting about what you're saying is that I think that, because I just finished reading a book that's called Untangling Anxiety. Okay. And the biggest thing that they mention is the importance of psychoeducation mm. for people with anxiety and panic disorders. Mm-hmm. Like understanding the process of a panic attack, the feeling like that the actual the actual the feeling that is mediated by actual chemicals in your body, adrenaline yeah. and cortisol and like why are you actually feeling that way? And I feel like if people invested or or forget about invest, like had a little bit of curiosity because I always say that you need curiosity in order to do anything in life you know how does the scientific method even begin right it's like oh I'm curious about why the sky is blue right I think the sky is blue because xyz oh let me test that right right and if you approached your own body and your life with that same method and curiosity for hey why am I the way I am Why am I actually afraid? What am I afraid of? What is going on in my body? How can I change that, my perception about it? It's a massive thing. And it's like, it just, it made me think about it. What you were saying about not, people not knowing themselves and not knowing what they're feeling. Because for me, reading that book right. and just understanding the role of adrenaline and cortisol are totally. alone. Just it was a one page yeah. that changed my whole outlook. It's like, oh shit, like yeah, that is what adrenaline does, and that is exactly the symptom I have. My heart rate gets elevated, my palms get sweaty, my mind gets foggy. I'm not losing my mind. Adrenaline's in my blood. Exactly. You're able and that shifted exactly. my entire perception about anxiety and about what was ha- happening mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. See, that mm-hmm. is amazing. So what you're what I'm hearing you say is that you're very aware of those moments of vulnerability yeah exactly that's what makes the most successful individuals at exactly. least that's what I've seen um, so it's like if if they were like oh okay you know I'm on a moment of peak stress mm-hmm. you know I, my doctor told me that during this time I'm the most likely to develop an addiction to lean into substances uh, to do whatever and so I'm aware of it I'm not uh, losing control I don't have Uh, low willpower. I'm not a bum. I'm not uh, lazy. It's just all of these things that are contributing to how I'm feeling. And I'm not going to do any of this because I understand Mm -hmm. that it's just, you know, it's like my body tricking me essentially. And by understanding the pinnacles of weakness, you can decide what you're going to do about it, which most of the time is nothing. Mm -hmm. If you are aware of it, you don't have to try to get that that next hit that next thing and you know it's interesting what you're saying is is very smart one of the things that i see on the this entrepreneurial journey is that their health goes like this it's like this right as their career gets bigger the ebbs and flows of their health also um, seem to go up and then complete burnout and go up and and ultimately when those entrepreneurs begin to realize that you see them really excel because after they're able to contain these highs and lows is when their real success seems to kick in. And it's possible mm. to contain them? 100%. Let's talk more about that and, and, and tell us a little bit yeah. about your practice. Let's do like a little intro about what you do. Yeah. 
and how you got there and what kind of patients you see. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I have a concierge medical practice. I still see patients and I see patients actually worldwide, which is typically remote, but um, oftentimes I'll, you know, like obviously I'm gonna take you on as a patient. You better believe I have a physical exam kit with me. I do. <laughs> I travel badass. with it. The truth <laughs> is I travel with it in case that there's an issue on the plane. This is like a paranoia of mine. Um, earlier on in my career, there had been issues on airplanes and I uh, just always like to be prepared. It's so badass. I mean, I would do the same. <laughs> She's like a superhero. You yeah, get me? No. We like have our little goniometers in our back. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a doctor on the plane? <laughs> yeah, hold on. <laughs> I'm not a um, real doctor, but you know, I'm a Well, you know, it's a, no, 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 it's, it's a clinical doctor. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, if, if you have tools with you, if you have like a blood pressure cuff, you have just like things and stethoscopes and whatever. I pull out my Paragon. <laughs> um, yeah, well. <laughs> so I'm sure you're a lot more helpful on the plane. There's that. I, you know, it's just. So I love that. Yes. Anyway, you're a superhero. You travel. You're super yeah, uh, superhero. All five one of me <laughs> at 110 pounds. <laughs> Uh, which is a criteria, again, to be on this <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah, so I have a, a concierge medical practice, but what I often do is I, when I go to events, I have a lot of my patients there. For example, it's an entrepreneurial event tomorrow that I'm speaking at here, and I just have this stuff. So that is pretty much how it works. And the way in which the practice works is that either you have to apply or it's a word of mouth referral. So if like someone called, if Andy was like, hey, you know, Steffi's amazing, she should be in your practice, I'd be like, good to go. Uh, and then, yeah, that's it. Interview only and word of mouth. It's like a like a sorority, you know. <laughs> you have to apply it. You have to be vetted to get in. Yeah. And it needs to be an acceptance process from both it ends. It does. Mm -hmm. I like that. It I does. Mean, and you know what? At the end of the day, and it's similar in in physical therapy and in personal and in any industry, right? Like you get you get what you're paying for, mm -hmm. essentially. So it's like if you want real good medical care, if you want real good physical therapy care, if you want real good personal training. You're gonna have to pay a little bit more than than the <laughs> it average. Is, it right? is expensive, but yeah. um, the reality is, you want someone who's gonna be there for you whenever you need them. Mm -hmm. Like, doesn't matter, and also gonna go the extra mile and get to know you. Yeah, and who's committed? Yeah, committed, yes. committed to your personal well-being. I guess. A hundred percent. That's willing to think about you. You know, I know when all my patients' birthdays are. Well, that's obvious, right? Because I have their date of birth. I also know mm -hmm. their favorite color, what they love to do, if they love dogs. You know, don't be shocked if you get, you know, if your dog gets some kind of like sweater outfit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it I might be pink. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Um, but I, I do believe that uh, another thing about that is a good physician recognizes these patterns of diseases, right? Mm -hmm. But an exceptional provider recognizes patterns of people. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Meaning, more like a coach, there's, almost, that human aspect. Yeah, of it, there's right? archetypes of people that are a good fit for your practice. Well, you know, um, or like for your coaching, and also for my practice. There's an there's a certain fundamentals of an individual that I think the longer you are in medicine, I've been practicing medicine for many years, the more you get to see the archetype of people, like what they're about, uh, what do they value? Do they value the relationship? Are they gonna be unlikely to tell you the truth because it's the relationship that they value more, mm. right? Are they uh, too many cooks in the kitchen? Are they getting input from all these different people? Those patients never do well. Are they um, like an executor? You tell them what to do, you know, put me in coach, like, what do I need to do? I'm gonna get this, this, and this done. Those guys always do the best. So it's it's understanding, you know, who the patient is. Mm -hmm. I love that. was that. the huge chunk of conscious coaching by mm. Brett Bartholomew. Mm -hmm. Just 
all of the archetypes, hmm. you know, because oh, cool. it's so important to be able to connect with someone and understand how yeah. they work. How much of that training years. do you receive in medical school? I yeah. did two years of psychiatry at the University of Louisville wow. in my training. Because you wanted to be a psychiatrist mm -hmm. or because? I really thought, well, so initially I wanted to be a psychiatrist because I was very interested in the human mind. I was very interested in what made people great. And I thought that that's what psychiatry was. I didn't really know that it's not, <laughs> uh, but initially. Or, so what is? What is what? What makes, what people, makes people great? great yeah. oh, man, I think it's the core fundamental of who they are. And I think everybody has greatness inside of them. And what makes an individual great is setting a standard for themselves. Mm. And when you set a standard for yourself, um, and you are the kind of person that is unwilling to fall short, mm -hmm. you'll be great. And I agree with you, and I think everybody has that in them. I do too. It's so frustrating to me because look, especially now being in combat sports, I meet a lot of people that you know come from broken families, broken houses, that are in a really bad financial place, mm -hmm. but they're such great people. They're, you know, they have their unique abilities and they, and maybe they have abilities that they don't even know they have, right? That they haven't discovered or they haven't developed and whatnot. And it's so frustrating to me because it's like, I want to help them. But if those people don't have the self-awareness that they that that developing some sort of skill or talent requires, then you can't really, I don't know, there's not much to do there. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I believe that drive and the willingness for real greatness is... Uh, an intangible quality that individuals are born with. You and think that? I do, and here's That's why. And listen, I have a, a friend uh, who would totally disagree, Rich Devinney, he's also a, a SEAL, he wrote the book Attributes, and he would say that nature uh, is not as powerful as nurture. Hmm. Mm. But I would say, having two little children, my daughter, Aries Hunter, is born an alpha. <laughs> my son, Leonidas Michael, is such a strong name. Even, yeah, they're gonna, total, that. they're gonna be total wallflowers. Yeah, yeah, total wallflowers. Kids already. Uh, but my son Leonidas is. I mean, obviously, my daughter's only three, and my son is eighteen months. Okay, but he is really musical, and he, he's like softer. And at her, at his age, she was already like alpha dog. And how interesting. I, and I'm sure that you know, the, the environment and the nature could probably change them. But it's very but interesting to see that they're, they, ha they are born with certain qualities. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that one is necessarily better than the other, right? It's like you, you what's that saying? Uh, the grass is greener on the other side, it's greener where you, where you water it. Totally. It's like they're both, totally. imagine like maybe your son will be an incredible researcher that's just more introverted, you know, that just keeps himself like, it's fine with receiving Maybe. orders, yeah. whatever, you know what I mean? Doubtful, and, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just saying. Stop crying. <laughs> uh, change your own diaper. But uh, <laughs> yes, and you know, arguably is it nature versus nurture? Mm -hmm. I do think that, and, and this goes to what you were saying is you see people coming from broken homes and, and you know, I would say nearly all the seals have major home trauma. Really? Oh, 
yeah. across all of them. Most I mean, not them. all of them, right? right? So I'm, I'm speaking in broad generalizations right. that probably be really pissed at me, but the reality is they're not because they're not really that easily offended. Uh, and again, I'm talking about them as a group, but I am married to them. I'm married to them. To all of them. All of them. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, honey. I'm married to one. I've Listen, I've been up since four and took a flight that was delayed. And so it's like, a, I whatever, there's an excuse there somewhere. Um, I'm married to one and I do take care of many in my practice mm-hmm. over the years mm-hmm. and, and still do. So uh, that being said, do I believe that there is this innate drive? I do, mm-hmm. I do. And if an individual can tap into it, some people are more driven than others and people, yeah, that's obvious. And then there are some people are, that are just hungry. They are just hungry. They are just born that way. I bet you were born that way. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me yeah. who you are today is drastically different in the drive and motivation than 10 years ago. No. It wasn't. No. no it, wasn't it wasn't for me. Yeah. And do you feel, I've, I feel like that quality about my personality often makes me very misunderstood, especially like with my family growing up too like even with lifting like 10 years yeah. ago when I started lifting yeah, yeah. I started getting better started getting bigger whatever my mom was like so when is it gonna be like enough like how much more do you have to lift how much more muscle and I'm like yeah there's no limit you know mm-hmm. as much as my body allows me mm-hmm. like I'm going all the way kind of thing and yeah I think that those uh people who are like that like overachievers that want to push themselves as hard as they can well I mean I mean at least I guess I'm speaking from my personal experience like it mm-hmm. makes me misunderstood to a certain extent front of certain people you know a life of um effort and a life that leaves a mark is often misunderstood right a a quiet life where uh you don't challenge yourself where you are not a mirror to other people where you're not challenging them is um perhaps not the best path yeah Mm -hmm. no i'm with you yeah so what um how did you take me through like yeah, yeah, yeah. how you got to being who you are now yeah um so i was bo- no just kidding because okay so yeah, what yeah, i yeah. what i love the most I, that was a super broad question no, 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 about, just, I, I hate when people are like so tell me your story i'm no, like no, no, where do i start if you, know? you want to know about who somebody is you have to know where they came from and what they did yeah i, I guess Agree. what i find the most i find many things impressive about you but one of the things i find the most impressive about you is I always say that the world belongs to people who develop skills and combine them in creative ways. Yeah. I didn't say that. Someone else did. But I totally stole it. Yeah, yeah, no, it was mine. a good one. It was a good um, one. And, you know, what you're doing right now is, like, you obviously spend so much time learning about the human body, developing your knowledge. Yeah. And in the medical field, you're also extremely capable in business. You know, you found a way to monetize it mm-hmm. more than the more than the average practitioner, right? Above the average yeah, practitioner. For well sure. above. And um, you're, I mean, you're an exceptional practitioner above the average practitioner as well. And you're combining it with also, I'm assuming, like passion for fitness, you know, mm-hmm. passion. In- she said assuming because I, I was telling her how narpy I am. <laughs> yeah, I don't believe it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like walk me through like how all of it came together yeah. kind of thing. What is interesting about my path is that it hasn't changed. Graduated high school early. I graduated in three and a half years, and I moved in with my godmother, who's a PhD in nutritional sciences. And she was one of the OGs in the functional medicine space. So functional medicine mm-hmm. really gets a bad rap these days, but you know, at its core, it's about root cause medicine. 
It's about what is the root cause of an issue or illness. So I moved in with her when I was 17 and she was seeing patients as a PhD. She was seeing patients in person and I would sit in on all these patient visits and I realized the importance and impact nutrition had. She was seeing cancer patients, she was seeing all kinds of patients. From that moment, I knew that nutrition was my passion. Totally obsessed with it. And uh, prior to that, I was always into fitness. I you know, ran track, I was into dance, gymnastics, always doing something physically active. By the time I left Hawaii, so I had moved in uh, her house while she was living in Hawaii, I went to study human nutrition, vitamin mineral metabolism. And I completed my degree at the University of Illinois under Dr. Donald Lehman, who happens to be one of the, I don't want to say original, but really early pioneers. a very, he was an early pioneer in protein metabolism. And, you know, a lot of the stuff I talk about, these leucine thresholds, was discovered in his lab. So this guy has been in research for 40 years, and he's trained me for 20. Wow. Um, and I was actually gonna just study nutrition. But what happened was at the University of Illinois, I don't know if you know this, but there's tornadoes and there are tornado drills and there are issues that happen. And there was a tornado. I don't know if there was an actual tornado, but it was like this whole thing where everyone had to go into a fallout shelter. And we were down there for probably, I mean, it felt like forever, maybe it was two hours. And I was sitting down there in my dietetics class thinking to myself, I am completely and utterly useless right now. Hmm. In this moment, if there was an emergency, there's nothing that I can do to help anybody. And I would say my biggest fear in life is to not be useful in a moment of need. No wonder you carry that briefcase with you. <laughs> that, that, it all makes sense now. Yeah. But, um, so what's your definition of being useful? Yeah. In case of a crisis situation, you should be able to contribute. In some way? Yeah. Like maybe build something? In any, okay. Yes. So I grew up camping, hiking, learning how to live on the land. I grew up doing things that perhaps would be a bit uncommon for a city girl. Mm. I do believe that you have to be able to take care of your fellow human. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I was sitting no, I in this wish, I wish, shelter. I like, wish everybody lived their life <laughs> with a premise alone. Like uh, I want to be capable and able to take care of my fellow humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To contribute know, to society. Contribute to in some the community. way. Yeah. You know, live, live a life of, of virtue. So you felt like you weren't able to do that? So fully? I was sitting there and I'm like, what am I going to do? Tell someone to eat an apple? Yeah. I really felt, I, I just had this moment where there's, I, I cannot do anything for anybody. Eat an apple. <laughs> you know, the girls in my class were talking about, I don't know, some kind of sorority thing. And here I am sitting here like, oh my God, um, here, have a protein shake. Yeah. And it was at that moment where I decided I needed to go to medical school. I needed to learn skills that were uh, applicable and relevant and that could serve in case of an emergency. And that I would always take my nutrition, you know, that that was the defining moment for me that I decided to go into medical school. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that I wasn't interested in nutrition, I was. Obviously, I trained in nutrition, you know, in part of my uh, medical school, I was still doing nutritional consulting, I was doing all that stuff. So uh, when I finished 
undergraduate, again, I had a degree in human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism. And instead of minoring in dietetics or whatever, if it was a major, a major or minor, I minored in chemistry mm. and then went to medical school. Mm. I was very interested in the human body and I didn't know if I was going to go to MD school or DO school. So I applied to both. And I decided that I would go to DO school because I was very interested in sports medicine. I was very interested in the musculoskeletal system. I was very interested in, in things of that nature that related to muscle. Following that, who knows what happened? I really hated medical school. Why? Mm. Because it, I found that it was really, and I say this cautiously, why did I hate medical school? Mm. I felt that we were learning about the human body and we were learning about pathology, which is super critical because you have to know what's going to go wrong in order to know what's going to go right. But it stopped there. So we learned about pathology, but we never learned about what could go right. It was always what could go wrong. And that's critical and valuable. However, there's another component to that. And I really hated not knowing that there were potential options for things and we were just taught and algorithmic nature to treat. And that really went on through every step of my training until I got to fellowship, which, so I did uh, two years of, of um, psychiatry. I was also very interested in this mind-body connection, the whole thing, two years of psychiatry, which was incredibly valuable. In psychiatry training, again, I went there thinking everybody was interested in being and having mind control and and having a way of thinking about being their best self, that was a bit naive of me. And I would say when you're in medical school, uh, no offense to all the medical students, there is a, a lack of experience. And that lack of experience breeds a bit of naivety. <laughs> uh, so for two years, I trained in psychiatry and it was really valuable. I learned about anxiety, depression, schizophrenia. I worked in lockdown units. It was really, really high pathology. But it wasn't for me. And I also found that my fellow psychiatrists didn't have their minds together in the way that I'd hoped. It was almost as if the pathology bred a very interesting physician, right? The more mm. you are around something, the more normal it becomes, whether it's normal or not. And it, it, again, this was only my experience, so I can't speak for other psychiatrists, you know, for there's a lot of great psychiatrists mm -hmm. that I know that I love. But for me, early on in my career, I was surrounded by psychiatrists that just didn't quite have it together. And I saw that the more comfortable they were in these really intense lockdown situations, the more awkward and uncomfortable they were being around healthy people. Wow. Mm. And actually, one of the psychiatrists ended up killing herself. So perhaps it was just that cohort that I was with, right? That residency group that I was with, that it was just a lot of pathology within the physicians. Mm. Wow. Um, and it really turned me off. I bet, oh my God. Yeah. I legit take one psychology class and I think I have all of the, yeah. all of the That's called medical student syndrome. I ha Congratulations. I have it, I have it uh, and I didn't even go to medical school. Well, I think uh, that's called hypochondriac. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to medical school, no, I have this, this, and this. My husband's the same. I'm like, oh get God, it together, dude. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but after that, I, I switched to family medicine. And family medicine gave me a really broad spectrum capacity for care. And it was really beneficial. But I knew that I wasn't going to be a family 
practitioner. When I finished my three years, so that was three years, so two years, and then three years, and I did a postdoc, which is what you go to uh, for additional training after you are a board-certified physician. I went and I did two years of uh, nutritional sciences at WashU, and it was a geriatric fellowship, geriatric uh, obesity medicine fellowship. And my responsibilities was were uh, two years doing clinical research, and I looked at, we did a lot of obesity research, and clinic, so I ran a, a weight loss clinic as well, and then geriatric work, which had a profound impact on me, and I swear I think I had PTSD from that, which was end-of-life care. So the majority of my patients were in the last five to 10 years of their life. Mm -hmm. And they had significant pathology. My responsibilities were as a fellow running a, a brain clinic, right? You run it with your uh, attendings and then nursing home rounds and end of life. I, I can totally understand why that was, a, you know, yeah. such a intense experience, but what about it was the most difficult part for you? Obviously uh, seeing people in suffering. I understand everything, yeah, but no, I guess I want to hear. No, it was seeing, there, this is a very dense question, so I'm going to try to unpack it. Mm -hmm. uh, seeing a lot of death that uh, makes you reflect on how people lived. Seeing the way in which people die and thinking about how they lived, where they have these chronic diseases, where you know, you're looking at diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, a lot of these metabolic diseases. And these metabolic diseases that these individuals struggled with really changed the quality of their life for decades. And you see the impact that it has on the families. And then at the end of their life, over and over and over again, uh, you'll, you'll get to know me, but I, for the most part, I'm a pretty warm person and I really do care about humanity and I do care about people. And um, I would sit with patients and talk to them and talk to them about their life. And many that were with it and you still had their faculties about them had a lot of regret. Mm. About the way they lived their about life? About the way they lived their life. About and not having done certain things for their health and stuff? or About relationships, about um, dreams that were never fulfilled. Yeah, that's my biggest fear. About what you're saying now. But you're going for your dreams. A lot of these people didn't have the wherewithal or the confidence to do that. And I think over a period of time when you see a lot of death and a lot of regret, and the family impact it has, it becomes very difficult. Can't imagine. And, you know, I, I, which is one of the reasons I practice medicine. So I created this concept of medicine, which is this muscle-centric approach. And it was, it's very personal to me. And how it came about was very personal. I was imaging individuals' brains. So we were working on a study where we were looking at brain volume and body composition. And this woman came in and I, I really loved her, right? I spent a lot of time, we did a lot of cognitive testing. You know, you do glycemic insulin clamps and muscle biopsies. I had to do muscle biopsies and I had to do fat biopsies and it was just, you know, stress, like all the things. You know, these were very comprehensive um, protocols. And this one woman, and I loved all of them, but this one woman really struck a chord. 
And you know how we all have those people, that aha moment, just like Brian initially when he lost his, his leg and he's like, dude, I'm over it. This woman was a mom of three and she had always been struggling to lose her last, I don't know, 15 to 20 pounds her whole life. She's always struggling to lose this last 15 to 20 pounds, doing Weight Watchers, doing Jenny Craig, watching Jane Fonda, doing the things. And I imaged her brain and her brain looked like an Alzheimer's brain. And mm -hmm. she was probably in her 50s. I, I don't remember exactly her age, but she was really young. That's scary. It was scary yeah. and it was devastating. And I felt like I failed her. Oh. I felt personally responsible, whether that was appropriate or not. I felt that I failed her. And I felt that the medical community had failed her. We we're constantly battling and we are constantly battling this obesity epidemic which by the way an epidemic is something that spreads quickly and kills people so do we have a proverbial obesity epidemic no we don't okay mm -hmm. i realized that what these people all had in common wasn't that they all suffered with obesity it was they all had low muscle mass all of them and it was this trend that I was seeing over and over and over again that nobody was talking about. And that I realized that her metabolic derangements began in skeletal muscle decades before. With her effort to do the best she could, she was always focused on obesity, which mm -hmm. was just a symptom of what she was really struggling with. She which was, was trying muscle. to lose weight, lose weight, lose right. weight. But it was really about had she gone back and had we gave her an empowering message rather than this obesity message where you should, you know, she spent years yo-yo dieting and, you know, and then there was the food guide pyramid and there was all these things. Had we focused on muscle, had we focused on heavy resistance training, right? Some kind of hypertrophy, some kind of strength. Had we focused on the things that really would have moved the needle for her metabolically, I argue that she probably wouldn't be where she was. And that's where these concepts came from, this concept of muscle-centric medicine, and also my drive to bridge the gap and wake people up. We can't just be talking about obesity. We've done that. We've done that for like decades now, mm -hmm. right? If you're asking the right question, then we would see a solution, right? In my clinic, we figure out the right problem and then we execute on it and then individuals get better. But if you're asking the wrong question, and you're executing a paradigm. Again, a paradigm is a construct that we make up. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. So we've made up this construct and this model of obesity that people continue to perpetuate the conversation where it's not a lot of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of, um, well, this is, this is how we've done it. This is how we always do it. We have an obesity problem and, and go forward. Mm -hmm. Not to say that obesity isn't a problem, mm -hmm. but is obesity the root mm -hmm. or is it actually a skeletal muscle issue that begins decades earlier? Yeah. And yeah. That, that's my argument. Yeah. The overconsumption of calories and yeah. the under exercising and mm -hmm. the lack of weightlifting. Right? And then Versus throw training. in a discomfort to do hard things and you have a uh, yes. perfect soup for disaster. What's up, everyone? It's your favorite podcast producer, Nick Tricana, here to give you a word from our incredible sponsor over at Element. Because we love y'all so much over here at Hybrid Unlimited, we're going to hook you up with a free sample pack of Element just for you. Each sample pack includes eight grab-and-go packets in a variety of different flavors. All you have to do is go to drinkelement.com hybrid. 
That's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid. So talking about paradigm shifts, I mean, obviously within the medical community that is already changing, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that I find the most difficult is changing people's minds of hardwired beliefs. Mm -hmm. Like we have that same struggle within physical therapy. I bet. You know, just with simple things like, oh, lifting is not bad for your back. Mm-hmm. I mean, how hard is it to change someone's mind about that? Mm-hmm. Or you don't need to stretch your hamstrings. You know, mm-hmm. you could or be spending your time doing something better for you like this, ex- et cetera, right? For so, sure. I mean, obviously people who understand the human body and who are in healthcare have a firm grasp of all the concepts that you're saying. But, and I think you do an exceptional job at relaying that message, especially because of who you are, you know, you're a beautiful woman, you're accomplished, like you know how to speak and you're committed to delivering the message yeah. to people, right? But yeah. h- how are we gonna, or how are you planning on kind of changing that paradigm within people, within the yeah. patients in a, at a bigger scale, not with a yeah, yeah. with a hundred clients that you have at a time, which yeah. obviously you are making a massive, you know, change and, and you are helping these people, but yeah. how can we make it like more global, I guess? Uh, I think that there's two main ways to do it. Uh, there's probably three main ways. And again, I, I've thought a lot about this. So number one, I'm gonna be training up other physicians. I'm actually taking my first cohort oh, nice. through that in January. Be nice. training up other physicians, training up other physicians in, in order how to think about muscle, how to think about body fat, how to think about some of these markers that we've been looking at in clinic for a, a long period of time. Uh, so that's number one, train up other physicians, have them understand the physiology, have them really begin to think critically about what it is that they're they're looking at. So that's number one. Number two is interfacing with people like you, because the big gap that I see is you have the medical community and then you have the fitness community and the real magic. Let's face it. If I were to pick nutrition or training that's going to get someone better, I'm going to get a lot of heat for this. I would pick training. Mm. That is going to have a much bigger uh, impact, I believe. I mean, listen, do we have to pick one or the other? No, Mm. but I cannot get people better if they are not doing the training aspect. You just can't. The body was designed to move genetically, was designed for hard things. I mean, hard things, people are like, oh, hard things. No, you were designed to have physical activity. I don't even smell that. I don't smell Dexter. Dexter, no farting. You're comfortable. Not not only that, but your butt is facing this way. (laughs) Very rude. Very rude rude to the guests. Turn the other way. Excuse me. Hello. Turn the other way. (laughs) Fart that way. You're just like my son. Fart that way. Um, (laughs) So I guess you're right. I mean, yeah, helping other. And I was going to say, when you were mentioning about about, uh, medical school and the things that you didn't like, because I feel similar about physical therapy school. It's easy, though, to judge from the outside, like we're not um, involved in the educational system oh, as a it's whole. Really like, tough. We it's don't put tough. the curriculums together. We yeah. don't do any of that. So from the outside, it's easy for us to be like, that program sucked, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But at the same time, I do think it's a really good starting point. And I think that programs like that, like a mentorship of some yes. sort, where people who already have developed the skill of critical thinking, I agree. and who can combine the knowledge from your psychiatry training, your mm-hmm. internal medicine, your nutrition, your own training, who have had that experience and can be like, listen, like I've thought about ways a little bit different. I wanna teach you how I think. Yeah, And that's kind of like what's missing. And imagine if, if there were some way to Kind of, you know how when you, I don't know why I keep referring to sororities, but you know how they give you a big sister? 
Yeah. You know, when you join a sorority, yeah. like it's kind of your, your, your mind. I was never in a sorority. Were you in a sorority? I wasn't a sorority. I was in a sorority for a semester. I was not. Okay. Yeah, I wouldn't have learned this. See? <laughs> and I wouldn't have learned what my limits are for alcohol tolerance. Do you want to know what I was doing in college? What were you doing? I was collecting urine and doing <laughs> rat studies in college. Can you imagine? I was like, oh my God, this is the worst. You're a freak. Oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? It all paid off. Look at you now. Yeah. And look at us. And I know my... <laughs> exactly. I know my alcohol tolerance limit. You know? I know that after four or five shots, I'm going to be shit-faced. That is That's what I learned from my sorority. But anyway, so imagine if they if they were able to pair you after medical school. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to pair you with, with Dr. Gabrielle Leon. She does this and this and that. Based on your interest, she'd be like the perfect person for you to talk to. And even if it's like legit a week-long... Inter, or not internship or, or process where you can share resources, share ways of thinking, podcasts, books. Let me ask, Aaron, I need to ask you a question. Yeah. What's stopping people from going out and getting that? Nothing on their own. Uh, I did it. Initiative. I did it. Mm-hmm. Initiative. But you, I did it. I, I know, would sit, but, you people, know, but, you know, but I, people are not like you. Yeah. That, um, I would say I am common. My habits are good. Mm-hmm. People don't have good habits or initiative, or big ambition. People are, even doctors who are extreme, people who go through medical school who are extremely intelligent and capable, sometimes lack the ability to sit, to think outside the box because we're conditioned by a system It's true. that forces very us to think. Very algorithmic, which is very beneficial. And, is, but you need both. But you do, you mm-hmm. need both. There has to be some kind of creativity and thinking, you know, hey, if this problem isn't getting better, then maybe we're asking the wrong question, those kinds of things, absolutely. But mentorship is actually critical I have and do have mentors. And you asked the, the big the big question you asked is how are we going to bring this to the masses? Number one, training up other physicians. And number two, if there is a way to combine medicine and movement, um, or movement as medicine, muscle as medicine, mm-hmm. and interface medical community with the physical training aspect, and I say physical training aspect loosely, but understanding the knowledge that you guys have and being able to have a team approach together. Mm-hmm. That, that's actually where the real magic mm-hmm. is gonna happen. Right now it's the exception to the rule, but wouldn't it be great if it was the standard of care? Yeah. I think oh, that, that that's beautiful. Oh, that that yeah. is a goal. So I think that is a goal for me because I think and I, I'm curious to know what your experience is as well, Becca. But when I feel like a lot of patients who need who who desperately need resistance training and nutrition advice and just lifestyle intervention mm-hmm. are some of the hardest headed ones. Um, I'm legit just thinking about my mom and my stepdad. You know, yeah. my stepdad is like Cornell grad, mm. uh, practices law, mm. has his own firm, super successful, really bad health. You know, and it's from that generation of like, I'm just going to rely 100% on Western medicine and put in 0% effort. This is the type of person that's like, and not to throw shade at my stepdad, but I I hope that he he listens to this and reaches out to you, honestly. Mm. Um, But he's the type of person that's like, oh, you know, I I couldn't sleep. So I reached out to my primary physician and he gave me a higher dose of my sleeping med. And Mm. I'm like, how much Mm. sunlight do you get, dude? Yeah. You know, like I'm not a physician, but like, are you getting sunlight? Are you expending calories yeah, yeah. that make you tired throughout the day so that you can actually have a reason to sleep at night? I don't know. Are you, do you have a, a way that you're like winding down? You know, do you turn off your lights, dim your lights, you have a dim, I don't know. Yeah. And those, all of those are things that I think that as a personal trainer, strength coach, physical therapist, 
I don't feel like I get the, the authority or respect from that crowd for them to mm -hmm. understand that it's important. Like, I feel like they look at me like I'm some sort of like witch hippie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're like, oh, what I do think you think really, that like really your, your, your 10-minute walk is going to fix me? Like, no, I have to reach out to my, to my primary care so he can give me something that actually works. It's like, nah, dude, like you, you're not getting it. It's both. Mm -hmm. Like you said, there's no, you can't substitute Western medicine when you need a medication for yeah, it to yeah, treat yeah. something yeah. like that. But you have to work in parallel, right? And I feel like if you had, if people, if there ex something existed like that, which is similar to what you're doing, where people could um, have the, the, the advice of a physician that gives them the comfort and the trust that, They're a trained healthcare professional, you know, in Western medicine and understand science. And then you're vetting for me. You're like, hey, mm -hmm. you know, I, Steph knows her shit. Like, just go lift weights with her. You know, yeah. you're going to be okay. Yeah. You can do it. I know you have a heart condition. You're a little bit afraid of yeah, yeah. getting your heart rate elevated. You're afraid of your back, but you can do it. I'm going to be monitoring you. I'm going to be monitoring your labs. And then you and I collaborate yeah. and say, hey, yo, this person is putting an effort here. This putting's not, you know not putting an effort here and we measure their skeletal muscle mass, we measure their visceral fat. Is this person progressing? Are their weights going up? Mm -hmm. How are their blood markers? Mm -hmm. What's improving? Mm -hmm. And back to the education, they need to understand why it's relevant to them. Because oh. one of the things that I've seen is that no matter how good your exercise program is and how solid you are as a trainer, if it's not salient for them, if it's mm. not important for them, they're not gonna do it. And in order for it to be important for them, they need to understand why it matters. Right. For their life. Like, why is a 10-minute walk important? Right. Why is lifting weights important? Right. It's a lot of, like, unraveling and reversing these narratives that people are taught and that they just embody in yeah. terms of, like, oh, my physician told me I shouldn't lift because my back hurts. Well, and, and then the they're coming to us. And but we're and like, the next question oh, okay, is, should a physician be giving that advice? Right, exactly. Should a physician be giving nutrition advice? Nutri or training advice. Or training too, advice. Yeah. Many physicians are still talking about how people should cut back on eggs and red meat mm. because it's bad for cholesterol, mm -hmm. right? Like, Or they shouldn't lift heavy. Or they shouldn't lift heavy. And listen, obviously there are certain people that have genetic challenges with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia and you know maybe they need to have a, a lower saturated fat diet, they're, they're things of that nature potentially, but for the majority of people, uh, that's not great advice. Mm -hmm. That's the other reason I uh, feel like it's so critical to be as uh, forthcoming as I am is I've seen the end of life care. I've seen what these people are eating. I hear what people are arguing about in the media. Reduce dietary protein, don't lift heavy weights, this kind of thing. And who does that impact? That's gonna impact people like your parents. Mm -hmm. That's gonna impact people like your parents. That wave of youth closes. And when that closes, you're in trouble. When does it close? <laughs> Tell us. Well, it depends on how old you are. And then I'll okay. add in like at least. What if you were like 28? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, we have to really think about um, the narratives and the advice that we're hearing over and over again. What ends up happening to the individuals that are confused, right? It's like the mouse with the microphone. Mm -hmm you know, stop eating meat, stop eating animal-based products. Like, this is the worst, single worst piece of advice I could probably ever give an aging population. Mm, very interesting. So I, w I worked in cardiopulmonary rehab for about a year after mm. I graduated, and I did one of my internships there. There was a very heavy push in that program for 
a heavily plant-based diet. It's crazy. That's crazy. Very heavy push. Yeah. Right? And these people were how lacking gonna, a ton of muscle. How, how are they going to maintain that tissue? scary could they do it plant-based uh yeah but you're now talking about a lot lot of of calories calories. a lot of carbohydrates if you're going to try to do it naturally these things are uh, it's just bad advice Mm. um yeah Yeah. what um what are your thoughts on liver king (laughs) my husband is obsessed with liver king (laughs) he's amazing what an an amazing human but what What i'm not very familiar with the whole concept of the whole raw organ diet i mean do i i don't know like from a from a physician standpoint, is that I like, don't eat anything raw. Do you know I don't even eat sushi? Okay. Oh. Okay. Again, I deal I, bu- I deal with military operators a lot. You I know bu- what they come back with? What? what? You guys really don't like there's worms and helmets and protozoas and all kinds of things. In them. Yes. Oh. No one who is listening or watching this don't ever eat sushi or <gasps> raw meat. I love oh, raw sushi. My oh no. God. <laughs> I can't wait to see what we find in your belly. I think it's not that bad because Andy already saw my poop. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Shut up. (laughs) It's not that bad. (laughs) Oh my god! I bought a liver the other day, and but wasn't able to eat it, so I gave it to Dexter. Um, I mean, liver is good for you. You cook it. I I seared it. Okay. I seared it. It left it raw inside. Okay. Rare. You left it raw. Rare liver. Inside. Gross. Well, for him, hard pass. Is that acceptable? Hard pass. He puked. I mean, right arguably they say he puked. Is that what you said? Yeah, immediately. Oh. <laughs> immediately. He Disgusting. ate it as fast as he ate it. He puked in. It was in, out, just as it came in. What about cooked liver? Would you do yeah, cooked organ I do meats it for and my stuff? Kids. Okay. So, so let's let's talk about let's talk about um, recommendations. Like, how much yeah. protein should somebody eat? I'm sure you and I are on the same page, right? I'm sure. One gram per pound ideal body weight. Could you go higher? Yes. Could you go lower? Yeah. All just depends on what your goals are and what your preferences are. So what would be the best advice? I feel like for somebody like in their mid-30s, you know, starting to f- actually feel the aging, what would be like the correct recommendation from a nutritional and training standpoint? So, um, well, at least number, a starting point. Yeah. I mean, number one, I am not a fitness professional. And you guys have studied that much longer than I have. I would say from a nutrition standpoint, I recommend one gram per pound ideal body weight. I also think that there is some relevance depending on the health of the tissue to have protein in discrete meals rather than small amounts of protein throughout the day. Uh, I still believe that to be true. So whether it's a minimum of 30 grams per meal, if you're having a meal, I, I do believe that there is relevance for that. Again, at the age of 30, is 30 the minimum, but for the listener, I would say between 30 and 50 grams of protein per meal, determine, you know, depending on how, what their protein need is, is mm-hmm. valuable. Because I know that um, the data would say that the 24 hour period would be most important, how much protein you're getting in a 24 yeah. hour period. You know, uh, from an aging perspective, the tissue is less robust. Uh, can that be overcome with training? Yes. So there's this anabolic resistance that occurs. Can it be overcome with training? Yes. However, I do have concerns about obese tissue. Uh, you know, when we do imaging, you do see fat infiltrate into the, the muscle tissue. You know, depending on if it's in or around, you do see fat infiltration. So the, the question is, why not bolus protein? So that would be my argument. Two bolus protein between 30 and 50 grams. I think that there's 
good evidence for that as opposed to having small amounts throughout the day. What would be a small amount, like 20? Yeah. 15, 20? 10 to 20. But when you're younger, you can do it. I don't want to confuse anyone, mm -hmm. but you know, when you're younger, and when I say younger, uh, in your prime growing years, you know, like my kids, they don't need to have a, a protein bolus of 30 mm -hmm. grams. Mm -hmm. They would do be just as anabolic mm -hmm. with five. Mm -hmm. Because as you as you age, you get less anabolic. So you your do. ability to build and retain muscle mass decreases as you age. Um, from the evidence that I have seen, that is true. Yeah. And then the question is, you know, again, so from the evidence that I've seen, that is true. We don't have a lot of individuals who are lifelong exercisers, so uh, we don't necessarily have a huge cohort of what muscle looks like that's always been trained, mm. right? We, we you just... can start studying me from now. <laughs> we just don't. Uh, it's one of the most incredible things that I've experienced, mm -hmm. just as anecdotal, but the amount of lean muscle mass that I've been able to keep with minimal to no lifting, like I lift twice a week, you know, but just it's been... 12 years of heavy yeah. resistance training and it's incredible how much i've been able to retain and how easy it is for me to like mm. kind of trigger it again yeah with just like two or three weeks of of more consistent resistance training i'm mm -hmm. like buff again mm -hmm. it's What's really your protein cool. intake the last uh -huh. few months um honestly pretty high like i'm at like 150. gotcha but and i really i just had this realization i'm like i think i've been over consuming in terms of calories protein yeah because i've been having a hard do. i've been yeah, having yeah. a hard time like staying lean out mm. of camp and i'm like oh shit, i think i'm just like overdoing my protein like it's too many too many calories at the end yeah. of the day but i think that's helped me retain mm. yeah, retain muscle mass right right the so it's just kind of a, that yeah yeah but i think like out of out far away from a fight where my body weight doesn't matter that much i think that's a good move. Mm -hmm. Like keep my protein high and just try to yeah. decrease the amount of muscle loss that I that I experienced through so much cardio and conditioning, you know, running a ton. For sure. At least like four or five miles a day. For sure. But Did you run with Mark? No. I actually came in a day earlier. We just saw a mutual friend, Mark Bell, and he's really big nice. into the, the running kick. Yeah. You know, and so I went for a run with him. Uh, did, did you wear the... Um, uh, the mouth shut tape thing? No. Yeah. You ran with it? No, but he gave oh. me a whole box of it. Wow. To no. wear it for when I sleep. But I by the way, sleep. I am not a runner. No. My husband is training for the New York Marathon. He like jumped into week of five. Of course he is. Of course he, he jumped. Is. He jumped into week five training. <laughs> and I, you know, the first time I got with him, I'm like, oh, my calf. <laughs> I do this it's so bad. What's, um, where does the misconception of how, of the fact that there's an upper protein limit per meal come from? And is it true? Uh, per meal? Yeah, uh, like you can yeah, only yeah, absorb yeah. 40 grams or whatever. Nah, right. Who knows? Uh, no, you absorb all of it. You utilize all of it. Who knows where that, that uh, the bro science Listen, starts and stops, but no. I've made and reposted a video that explains yeah. that in detail yeah. for the last four years, and it's still received the same amount of shock. Yeah. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. And that's why I'm like, how am I, how are we going to change people's minds? That's like we're doing it. I think we're doing it. I hope we we're are. doing it. We are, but it's the biggest challenge. Um, it's a huge challenge. You know, the uh, narratives die hard. Narratives die hard, man. They're deeply ingrained, right? What They're about the eggs and cholesterol and the? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, you know, they took out cholesterol recommendations in 2015 from the dietary guidelines. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's hmm. crazy. So um, narratives die hard. You know, the, the next thing that you always have to ask is who stands to profit? 
Mm-hmm. Who gets, where is the benefit coming from, from the information? Mm-hmm. For example, the other thing that people talk a lot about is animal products are bad for the environment and that you, that. you know, you have to change your diet. Well, the reality is, and I interviewed actually um, Frank Mitlerner from UC Davis, who's one of the world leading experts in climate change, can't eat your way out of climate change. Fossil mm. fuel is 80%. That's a big guilt trip that people love it's to a send smoke, us on. But you know what? It's a smokescreen. Yeah. It's a smokescreen. A smokescreen? What's a smokescreen? Like it's a distractor. Yeah. So here we're going to tell you uh, animal products are going to, uh, if you, you know, to be uh, morally righteous for the planet, you should stop eating animal products. Mm-hmm. It's I propaganda. Mm-hmm. But it's a smokescreen when actually fossil fuel is, uh, you know, much bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Airplanes, yeah. cars, whatever. Yeah. Electricity, transportation, all this other stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you always have to question where, who's telling you, who's giving you the information? Where's the information coming from and what do they have to benefit from? Yeah, Who, who's benefiting? Exactly. What about um, protein in the kidneys? Now, I, I love it when the interviewer already knows all the answers <laughs> to the question, but is asking it for the, the viewer. Oh, um, it's hilarious. We want to hear you say it. Um, well, despite the handful of meta-analysis that have come out that have determined that healthy kidneys are not negatively affected by dietary protein, let's think about kidney disease. You know, when you think about diabetes and kidney disease. Last time I checked, diabetes was not caused by dietary protein. Was it caused by Diabetes is typically a glucose insulin problem, not a protein problem. Mm. So, it, you know, just just a thought to throw that out mm-hmm. there, you know, that uh, last time I checked, um, should probably uh, reduce the overconsumption of carbohydrates mm-hmm. and calories. And I've heard you talk, too, about how muscle is like a, it helps with, how did you word glucose it? Disposal. Glucose disposal. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I so got into this. Of course, because the contraction yeah. of the muscle so exactly. clears insulin I'm curious to what you guys muscle. think. And I, I um, you know, again, I'm still mentored 20 years later by Dr. Donald Lehman. It's a 20-year relationship. Can that's you so cool. He's my best friend. So my book that's coming out is dedicated to him. Aww. Yeah. I want to hear about that book. Yeah. Go on. Um, and I put together a new model for obesity. Right, you've got the calories in and the you know calories in, calories out model, and then um, the insulin carbohydrate model of obesity. Well, we're developing a, another model for obesity, which is obviously, as you can imagine, muscle centric. Yeah. And as I was thinking about, uh, we're working on a white paper about it. And as I was thinking about how I think about muscle health, right, muscle as again, I'm not a trainer. I am not a fitness professional. I think about muscle as it relates to overall health and wellness and longevity, right? I'm a physician. So as I think about training, I think about, and I'm, I'm curious, I, I need your guys' input, is I think about strength hypertrophy and specifically hypertrophy for increasing areas and um, place for glycogen disposal, carbohydrate disposal. Mm-hmm. And then I think about endurance activity for increasing mitochondria density, mm-hmm. uh, fuel oxidation, and then I think about high intensity, some kind of interval or sprint interval training. Mm-hmm. Okay, for why do I think about sprint interval training? I, I think about insulin resistance. I think about utilization of glycogen. I, mm-hmm. I just I think about the flux of yeah, it's a, it's a of different nutrients. energy system. It, different energy system. So I said, you know, Don, I think that 
when we think about the health of muscle and how that input plays into a role in this muscle-centric obesity model, I think that we should increase the activities towards hypertrophy training to increase storage space. Mm. He's like, that's a horrible idea. So I'm curious what you guys think, and here's what he said. He said, bigger muscles doesn't mean you're healthier. And mm. I said, well, okay, but what about healthy bigger muscles? Right. What if you have yeah. healthy bigger muscles? Muscles that muscles that are capable of doing the thing you want them yeah. to do. Yeah. Like what if they're healthy? Insulin, yeah. And they don't have fat infiltration, mm -hmm. and they're not fibrotic, and they're mm -hmm. not all this stuff. Because mm -hmm. he's thinking about hypertrophy from a bodybuilding standpoint. Perhaps, yes. You know? Um, so anyway, this was the argument. He said, don't go publicly and say that. I think it's a horrible idea. <laughs> I, I think it's a really good theory, and I feel like you can look at, at blood labs from athletes who are naturally muscular yeah. and also fit, like who, not athletes who have the muscles for the purpose of like the show, right? but athletes who have the muscle for the purpose of performance, Yeah. and actually look at that muscle's mitochondrial density, at that muscle's, you know, all of the things that you would look at to, to, to prove your point. Mm -hmm. But I think that... It's all about the training adaptation. Like, what is the muscle in? What is the muscle trained to do? Right, right, right. You're using it for what it was intended to do as the endocrine organ. Yeah, yeah. Is, so right? I think that there's a role. And diminishing specific. returns as well. Yeah. To like anything, right? Like too big of a muscle. I'm sure it's right. Not but good. I'm just like mm -hmm. thinking, you know, from a natural perspective. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about these thresholds of some of the bodybuilders. We're not talking about that. Mm -hmm. um, But I feel it, like I would agree with that. Yeah. And it's because it's a similar concept as like hypertrophy for strength. A bigger muscle, a, a muscle that has a bigger cross-sectional area, has a bigger capability to produce force. Doesn't mean that it will. Right. You know, you have to still train, train the neurological, scale, yeah. the neurological adaptations for in, in order for the muscle yeah. to actually produce the amount of force that you want it to. But it does. It, it is. A, it is a limiting factor. Like if you yeah. have a bigger muscle, you have a bigger potential for force production, as long as you train the adaptation. And also, what about glucose disposal? Yeah. If skeletal muscle is the primary site, you know, upwards of 80% of glucose disposal, the carbohydrates you eat, where are you going to put it? Mm -hmm. Put it in your muscle. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be interested to, to yeah, hear more so about that. that that's well. kind of my argument with that. But I was definitely curious as uh, your input, because Don has very rarely <laughs> said to me in 20 years, wow, that is a really bad idea. That sounds like a challenge to me. Why does he think it's... It's a bad idea. Because he agrees with Steph that, uh, or what Steph is saying, that he's likely thinking about it in um, a bodybuilding body perspective or bulk. And he also has some of these theories that aging muscle, the more muscle you have, that there's this natural transition to mm -hmm. fat and that you're now just carrying around extra tissue. Oh. Um, but I don't know that to be true. Yeah, I thought that that was a hypothetical. Yeah. Right. So I don't I don't know if that to be true. We'll we'll hash it out as we always do. But right. again, law of diminishing yeah. returns. Like I'm, oh. you know, just a little bit more muscle than the average person. Yeah. Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot of bit more than the average person. So I'm but actually, not yeah. so much that it's a bodybuilder. I agree. Right. And I'm actually um, I worked with, and I do work with a, a PhD. Her name is Alexis Cowan. She graduated from Princeton. Amazing. We put together uh, a, a different chart. So we compiled the data and we looked at appendicular skeletal mass index, which is obviously arms, legs. And we put together some theoreticals of how much skeletal muscle mass someone should have. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So that'll based, be- And based on what? So based on, it's, um, it's based on, good question, the sarcopenia data of where two little muscle mass would be. So appendicular skeletal muscle mass by 
uh, meter squared, right? So it's a, by height in meter squared, it's a, a formulation. And then looking at the appendicular skeletal mass for athletes of what a male versus female athlete would have and thinking about where is kind of the space in between and what a healthy adult would have. So the sarcopenia, the athletes, and then where in the middle, where a potential healthy skeletal muscle mass would be. Wow. So yeah, we just put the, we put the data together to, to look at that. I love that. I was just thinking, this is a completely aside, but I didn't get a chance to talk about it when you were mentioning it <clears throat> about, you were saying that in your unit, there was a heavy push for like veganism. You're saying yeah. like people are still avoiding consumption of, of the yellow part of the egg because of cholesterol. Yeah. And again, I'm just thinking back at my mom, my stepdad, and how, spe specifically my mom, how she's been so conditioned to think that there's something wrong with every single food group. And just from, you know, whenever I go visit her, it's like there's such a, it's such a heavy kind of avoidance way of thinking mm -hmm. about nutrition because there's, it's fear mongering. Like they're so afraid of every single food. It's like, uh, this, you know, this high fat food is bad for me because, because, because of the cholesterol, this, this high protein food is bad for me because of the kidneys, mm -hmm. this high carb meal it food is bad for me because of the insulin and it's like it gets to a point where seriously she eats nothing mm. mm -hmm. yeah and and paralysis by analysis it, yeah. it, she eats Too nothing and she's everything. she's still overweight obviously like the calories have to be coming from somewhere but they're not mm. coming from the place where they should be coming yeah mm. probably she's like starving herself most of the week and then the weekend comes in she goes out with her friends or like she invites people over or goes to restaurants and like that's where the majority of the calories are coming from mm -hmm. But from what I can observe, she is so afraid of, of, of anything because mm -hmm. of all the information and everything that gets tossed out there, you know. About, and that's really damaging. damaging. So damaging. Mm -hmm. And think about it. Right now, she has to do the right thing. It's not going to get easier for yeah. her. Mm -hmm. It's not going to get easier. And mm -hmm. if she doesn't have some perspective of, of what are the core fundamental principles that she needs to follow, it's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And she's not alone. It's tough for her. And then, you know, I always look on the internet, you know, I, when I see on Instagram and everyone's arguing about this and that, I always think, you know, you're not arguing, you're not putting this out there for, you know, the, the trolls on the internet that are saying all this ridiculous stuff. You're putting it out there for the people in the middle. It's how do we protect the people in the middle? Mm. Which, you know, that would be like someone like your parents. Mm -hmm. How do we protect them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I, I never really argue with the trolls. It's like ridiculous. I had, I interviewed um, an amazing woman. She's an amazing researcher. She did her postdoc at Harvard. Her her name is Dr. Suzanne Devkota. Amazing woman, right? Head of Cedar Sinai Microbiome Institute. Like, no big deal. Wow. Yeah, no big deal. Like walk in the park. Um, and so we did. We recorded a two part episode. And I was looking at some of the comments by some of the extremist groups, and they were like, "This Pete, you know this." This person doesn't know what they're talking about, even if she has a PhD binder, you know, you don't need fiber, like all this stuff. It was so insane. Hmm. It was so crazy to see that, number one, how can people be disrespectful, right? In, in academia, you're not like that. And number two, um, what are you talking about? It's, uh, it's, like it's insane. It's, it's the, um, the syndrome of the, because it's health and fitness, so everybody thinks they know. But it only it happens mainly in health and fitness. Yeah. You know, you don't see. Have you ever like, 
seen someone you know a lawyer give legal advice and someone be like no the statue <laughs> is not what 532 is not that you don't know no, actually right? it's true and i haven't seen it in medicine either yeah because 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 there's how, a standard of care actually mm-hmm. but in uh-huh. health and in health and fitness mm. there's so much information available out there there's so many people mm. presenting themselves That's as experts yeah. which they are not mm-hmm. yeah. and so you get people like oh yeah i i um follow this girl that has 10 million followers that mm. said xyz right. fit tea green tea uh vegan and don't eat protein and i believe it to be the true the truth and I also saw the same thing at a Cosmopolitan magazine, and now I know everything there is to know. Because I did my research. You did your yeah. research. You mean you Google and look at a magazine? Like, what are you talking about, you know? But it's, it's just the availability of information and, this, and how seemingly simple it seems on the outside. Like, it's so easy to point fingers, right? This is good, this is bad. Yeah, yeah. Right? But, and, and I think the true experts know there's, there's um, a continuum, and we're always learning new things. Yeah. And... Um, but I think that's why people feel brave to comment about it. And they feel like they have they have knowledge that they can use, you know, to as an argument. Or that they can use their opinion their personal experience and opinion. Right. As a as a and valid source of an argument. And right. it's not, right? Yeah. You need the research. It is frustrating. It is. But I appreciate your ability to kind of like take your stance, be very, very unapologetic about it, even if you I don't want to call you like a black sheep in medicine or anything, but it sounds like you're outside of what is normal. Yeah, right? yeah. And you're that's okay. And your challenger. take on a challenge, yeah, like a challenger, you know, of the you're, traditional yeah, belief okay. norms, yeah, right? or the traditional narrative, right? You're challenging all of those narratives, and you're able to take a strong stance. And I think that's effective because I feel like if I was in the middle and I heard you speak about these things, I would be like. Dang, this lady's onto something. I'm mm-hmm. I'm gonna listen to yeah, her. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna tease into this side of the argument a little bit more. So I think that's also helping us a lot with the cause. Yeah, and and I think that we need to come together instead of being so against each other. You know, it's really interesting. I um, as people or as a, or as health professionals. As health professionals. Yeah, for sure. You know, you won't see me go on another health professionals page and go, oh man, this is such bullshit. I would never do that. I would message them privately or I would say, hey, you know, let's jump on a call. We should talk about this mm-hmm. because I see what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the space of social media, that's kind of lost. And that's weird. It's, mm-hmm. you know. Very sad, right? Yeah, it's just not the best way. So if the ultimate goal is, if, if our ultimate goal is how do we make the world healthier, mm-hmm. if we truly want to make the world healthier, then there's a, collabor- a collaborative way to do it because we're much stronger together. And then there's a divisive way to do it where it's about the person. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's about the, that's, that's a mistake, mm-hmm. you know? And it, also think about like the approach, right? If you, if you just go on, some, on, a, on a healthcare professional's page on a post that they made that took them time to develop and it's what they believe, right? Whether yeah. it's for good, what, whether he had, she had good or bad intentions, I mean, that's, we're assuming, right? We don't really know why they're saying what they're saying. But if what we want is to help them see, change their perspective and change their dialogue by attacking them on a post publicly, yeah. like, are you surprised that that's not going to get the response right. that you want? You know, yeah. first of all, he's not going to change your mind, his mind, her mind. And second of all, he's probably just going to block you and never talk to you again. Yeah. And don't, he's not going to change. And then you miss the opportunity right. to have a, right. a, a conversation. Yeah. Um, and I get it. Everybody's busy, and we have to allocate time to uh, what we're doing. You know, man. Um, but it's as simple as a DM just being like, "Hey, have you thought about it this way?" 
Yeah. Or hey, I wanted to share a cool yeah, resource yeah. with you. I, I thought you might find this interesting. Totally. I'm I'm curious to know what you're what you think about this paper, how you would interpret it. You know, I just leave the the ball in their court. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. don't even tell them they're yeah. wrong. Just mm -hmm. be like, have you thought? Have you maybe like thought about it this way? I'm curious to know what yeah. you think. Right. Yeah, I think that, that there's there's valuable ways to do things. Again, if if the common goal is to move the needle in a collaborative direction, we must understand that physicians, healthcare providers, we all have different aspects and you know, traditionally it was very scholarly a scholarly activity to have these discussions mm -hmm. and to experience them and to hear perspectives. No one person knows everything and you know, science is a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, what I'm saying now, maybe some science will come out and it will be different. Mm -hmm. And I am doing the best with the knowledge that I have to date, but mm -hmm. it's possible things are going to come out and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not wedded to being right. I'm mm -hmm. wedded to helping, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and that's the bigger driver. Yeah. At the same time, I think we need both the hero and the heel. Like I just immediately thought about Lane, whom by the way, I love. I do too. Um, we tra both train under the same guy. Yeah. I love him. I he's think great. he's great. Yes. Um, obviously, his approach is a bit like, you know, extreme. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He does call people out by their, their mm -hmm. name and last name, tags them, like, <laughs> does the whole thing. And I do feel like you need both. Like, it's not my, it wouldn't be my approach, but yeah. every time he does that, I'm like, go lane. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Because because he's like the, the, the enforcer. He's the, the healthcare police that's, like, putting a stop to all of these, like, criminals. Because mm -hmm. it is criminal. You know, mm -hmm. to give misinformation and, and bad advice that has such a profound consequence mm -hmm. in a person's life. Like, yeah. that's sorry, but that's criminal. So, yeah, somebody needs to be like, hey, shut fuck up. You know, mm -hmm. you do not say that. And so you need that. You need the, the kinder hearted people that mm -hmm. are like willing to have a discussion and like try to change their mind from like a, you know, more empathetic way. Mm -hmm. But then you also need the people who are putting a dead stop on that kind of behavior and that are kind of preventing other people from taking the same route, right? Because, and I, and I think social media had such a such an impact mm -hmm. on kind of that because it became, it's a marketplace, right? So people yeah. started using it to sell things and they started kind of like being predators to people's naiveness and lack of knowledge yeah. to feed them information about things that they don't know about, present themselves as experts on a topic they don't have to have no idea about for the sole purpose of capitalizing on on their lack yeah, yeah. of you know knowledge which is sad so the fact that lane is there is like hey you know if you do that i'm gonna put you on blast too like that definitely stops people look i remember when i first started on social media um like so when i make a post on social media like yeah. i don't i wasn't too worried about like listing uh sources because it's mm. an instagram post like i would legit write three paragraphs yeah. and people will be like sources and i'm like what is this school yeah, dude yeah, this yeah. is a social media platform like resources and if i put put the pubmed link who is going two guys are gonna go maybe look at it and probably not you know so no i'm not doing that um where was i going with that what was i saying before that damn it the accountability before that you didn't do oh, yeah, you yeah, do yeah, it yeah. now but the fact that people like lane were out there and like the guys from barbell medicine i don't know who that is yeah, the guys from Bible mm. Medicine do the same thing, but more for like personal trainers and PT because mm. Lane mm -hmm. is more for like nutrition and that kind of stuff. They would do that to personal trainers mm. and strength coaches and stuff, and I would get called out by them 
all the time mm. and it would it would really kind of like make me pump my brakes sometimes and like mm. getting to a conclusion mm. or saying something that's more opinion based and not and not science based yeah. making sure that i say hey this is my anecdotal experience or this is based on empirical data like yeah. this is yeah. not i didn't find this on a, this is not very evidence-based mm. you know but it does it checks people mm-hmm. yeah it definitely checks people yeah i think you need a little bit of both um but going back to you being kind of like a, a challenger of some sort do you feel in any way um like pulled back by the fact that you're a woman in a male-dominated industry no at all Mm-mm. you never felt it Mm-mm. Mm. I, didn't, I never think about it also take care of a bunch of alpha dudes like his patient he's such a boss eh? and i, I never I, I never thought you know here i am like i i think that must be weird you know from <laughs> me you know as i was thinking about it the other day you know here i'm like dude if you don't send in your tan your, your test i'm literally sending you a box of tampons to your house or whatever <laughs> and and i just is like god these are you know these are like war guys, guys what about like the, the industry yeah. like who cares i'm not I don't doing know. for them yeah no i uh number one i never think that i'm five one Mm. It's true. Uh, I never realized how <laughs> short I am. <laughs> right? I never like have thought of like I never realized how short I am until I'm standing next to someone tall. That's okay. And I also never really think about being a female. I think if you're good at your job, that it, it doesn't matter. Like, what's you the show biggest? Up. What's the biggest challenge in terms of being a female and like getting your point across with this like male yeah. dinosaurs in the industry that are so set in their own ways? Um, I'm not really doing it for them. Mm. So the mission isn't for them. They may or may not ever listen. And if I make them the target as, you know, where the, you know, if they are the end, end all be all, like if that means that my mission is getting out there and they don't agree, then I mean, that, that can't be them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really think about it. And but the other part is I also am highly trained. I did my work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like. I you're go- competent I, you're- it's not like i didn't go to wash you mm. and do a two-year fellowship mm. after doing being a board certified physician after doing another two years of uh you know psychiatry and then you know uh human nutrition training under uh someone who still mentors me so i i, I have put in a substantial amount of work i would say i'll tell you what the biggest challenge is the biggest challenge for me is um i, I don't want to use the word balance but you know, I am a mom of two very little children, and I like to work and I like to push, and I probably work longer hours than people would think that's healthy because it doesn't feel like necessarily work to me. But I, I am willing to put in the effort to move the needle forward, and I would say that the hardest challenge for me is um, being able to provide balance in that way mm-hmm. for yourself for yeah being a mom you know from mm-hmm. you know this time so for example from 4 p.m to 7 p.m it's about my kids mm-hmm. but if i didn't finish the responsibilities that i've had which happens i'm going to be up working really late mm-hmm. and then i'm going to need to get up really early to finish whatever task is at hand mm-hmm. um, and that's just an example again yeah, that's yeah. you know um but I would say before I had kids, put me in, coach. Put me to work. You know. Did you ever experience kind of like, uh, I don't know, a situation where you felt undermined by 
a, by somebody, a guy, just because you're a female? Like, if you're trying to explain something or if you're trying to make a point or make a change, do you ever feel like, I don't know? Because I, I, I just asked because I yeah. felt that way. Um, but I don't know if it was because I was female, right? I don't, I think that, for example, I went on the doctor's TV show and uh, I was talking to these older physicians. They were older male physicians. And um, the stuff they were saying was like ridiculous. And I think that I was a bit more polite um, than I could have been. I don't know. I, I, I can't really say I've had the experience. I definitely don't think that it's a, a female, male experience. Hmm. You know what, I think that like, if you do your homework, if you put in the work, like you're saying, like, yeah. you know, you did your fellowship, you graduated from a top school, you yeah. were in practice, like, you have the, the, you earned your stripes kind of thing, yeah. you know? I think a lot of people, women specifically, kind of victimize themselves and attribute the lack of respect that they receive from their peers due to the fact that they're females hmm. instead of taking responsibility for the fact that maybe they are less, less prepared. Hmm. You know, and that is why they're not getting their respect or they're not, you know, getting the attention or they're mm -hmm. not the projects that they're proposing are not getting done. Yeah. And the because question is, is it is it um, dude, extreme ownership? There's always a sense yeah. of personal responsibility. Yeah. Are you did you earn their respect first and foremost? Right. Did you prepare yourself to to the level that you need in order for them to listen to you? You get me instead of just being like, oh, they don't listen to me because I'm a girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that probably that's not the case so much in medicine, right? Mm -hmm. You're either good at what you do mm -hmm. or you're not. And, uh, yeah. you know, from a medical perspective, I think it's probably less uh, sex um, dominant. I mean, so it's yes. So is it a male dominated field? Yeah, probably. Uh, are a lot of the physician, you know, is there a lot of old school male physicians? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, when you show up and you do the work and you put in years, um, it's a bit more objective. There's no, like, you don't have to do convincing. Like you're either good at what you do or you don't like you're either getting people better or you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's objective in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, cause I want to be conscious of your time. I do want to touch on your, the book. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Are you ready? Ready. Coming in hot. So the book will go on pre-sale in February. All right. And it doesn't even come out till September. I hope I get a signed copy. Are you kidding? <laughs> you hope. <laughs> hope is not a course of action or a strategy. <laughs> Good God. Um, so the working title might change. Right now it's called Forever Strong. And it's about the uh, revolutionary science of muscle and nutrition for health and longevity. Mm -hmm. So it's the opposite of what the handful of longevity experts are talking about. Mm. What are they talking about? Yeah. Protein restriction, do some yoga, yeah. go meditate, live in a blue zone. That's Man, it? that is okay. such, that is be pretty be wimpy and soft. Oh. This is the opposite. So this book has a mind frame component, like a mindset component. It has stories of patients. It has uh, nutrition, a lot of nutrition history. Again, this is a book dedicated to my mentor, Dr. Donald Lehman. It has a, a training component that... Uh, um, I actually did not write, so Kara Lazowskis, Kara Killian, you might know her, mm -hmm. maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, she actually was in Andy Galpin's lab. Oh, she did her nice. master's in, yeah. So um, I trust her knowledge, known yeah. her for years. We met with some of the military guys. So she developed a, a training program, nutrition protocols, and also the way that muscle interfaces with disease. Mm -hmm. And also reframing the construct of what we think about obesity. 
That is so cool. Who's, and I'm going to send a copy to everybody I know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sending a copy to my parents immediately. <laughs> um, who's a book for? Like, what's the kind of target? For everybody. Everybody. It's really for everybody. There is a section for every age group. I mean, obviously not younger than 20, but mm -hmm. yeah. for every age group. And also where the history of these stories came from. Mm -hmm. Man, Very I can't cool. wait to read that. Yeah. How long have you been working on that for? Oh, God. Um, two years. Took a long time to write. I, I wrote it. I also hired an investigative journalist to help mm -hmm. put it together, to help make it less sciencey, mm -hmm. to make it more approachable. Mm -hmm. We Very know, cool. we know the challenges yeah. of writing a book. Yeah. We we're in the process of writing one as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's it will lot. come out with Simon and Schuster, which was uh, under the Simon and Schuster umbrella. That's awesome. Very yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. I feel like the majority of our audience listening to this is pretty bought in to like muscle is awesome and we want more of it, but maybe for performance reasons, exactly. you know, um, uh, aesthetics, for your sure. physique and stuff like that. But I think it's no. so important that they know yeah, yeah. there are so many other benefits mm -hmm. exactly. that are going to serve us for the rest of our lives yes. if we just keep doing what we're doing or follow your guidelines in terms yep. of what we need to tweak as we age so that we can optimize. Everything. Yeah. I, uh, muscle is the organ of longevity, it truly is. You know, it's, we have, uh, we always think about the thyroid and the heart and, and you know, the skin, but skeletal muscle yeah. is arguably it, the most powerful. And it's not just for vanity. No. Yeah. I mean, listen, you want, want to look good in a bikini or a mankini, like whatever and you want to look too. And, and naked. <laughs> naked, exactly. <laughs> but is it, uh, I think that eventually if we can shift away from the focus, at least for the general population, of it just being about fitness and really about all the other aspects and the critical role it plays in metabolic health, in mental health, in uh, immune health, all of it. And we can change the world. On that note, <laughs> like that sentence, oh. <laughs> we can change the world. Dr. Leon, pleasure sitting down talking to you. It was absolutely amazing. You're, Thank you for having me. You're an inspiration, really. I, you're so badass. She has like this like warrior aura. I you know. know what I mean? I hate the I want to go aura. get some tattoos I'm right not now. An, Let's go. I'm not an aura or like a, a zodiac sign type person, but like, you know, you feel it when you see it. Powerful. Thank I love you. It. Thank, thank you guys amazing. both so much for having me. Absolutely. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at home if you want to rub my feet or do some dishes. My husband really cannot find his socks, even though he's uh, an elite war fighter. I, I could use the help. People can find me on Instagram, very active, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. My website, which is going through a very cool new rebrand. If people want to apply to be a patient, they can do it. Unless you know these nice. girls and they can vouch for you. Uh, I have a great newsletter, which they can sign up on my um, website. Obviously, Twitter and YouTube. Amazing. Oh, wait. And most important, I have a podcast. <laughs> What's yes, the name? It's very good. It's called The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. <laughs> By the way, I did not want to name it that at all. Okay, what uh, the only reason I named it that is so people could find it. But I, I actually did not. I don't even remember what I wanted to name. But I wanted to name it something you else. You have a good name, luckily. So. For but real. still, how cheesy is Is Lyon your real last name? It is um, I was saying not. Leon. It is my, no. And that is a story for another Lion. time. Oh, okay. But yes, it is. It is my legal last name. Okay. Yeah. That's badass. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you'll find all of that on the notes. Again, Dr. Lyon, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.